0: everybody, welcome to episode 25 of Literary Disco, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes episode. scared the
1: crap out of me. You a little too excited
0: there.
1: Writer strong. It's coming hard.
0: In today's episode, in two parts, we will do a bookshelf roulette where we take numbers from our audience, randomly <laughs> selecting a book from our bookshelf to discuss, and then we will delve into Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. This is the collection of... Of Sherlock Holmes' short stories.
1: Each one wildly different than the other. I'm
0: actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome,
2: guys. What's up? Hi.
0: All right, so Julia, have you been uh, investigating our number situation for. I
2: have. We have numbers, you guys. Okay. Okay. And let,
0: let's again
1: remind uh, both Ryder and myself and the listeners what these numbers mean.
2: Okay. So here's how it works. We're all going to go to a bookshelf in our house. Then we're going to get a number from one to four. And that's the corner on the bookshelf in which you start counting. So the upper left corner is corner number one. Upper right is corner number two, etc. clockwise around the bookshelf. Then once you have your corner, count down a certain number of shelves or up. And then we have a number of which book on the bookshelf you get. So we have three numbers, the corner, the shelf, and then the book itself. Are you guys ready? Yes. So, um, your corner from Tyson Meek. Thanks, Tyson.
1: Tyson's a big fan. Tyson, thank you so much. Yes. You're welcome in our homes anytime. Absolutely. Ryder, what's your address?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, The corner that you guys are going for is corner two, the upper right hand corner. Okay. Then you're going to count. This is from Kira Grunenberg. Shadow Melody
1: One on oh, Twitter. Yeah. Hi, um, Shadow Melody One. How you doing?
2: Nice. Shadow
1: Melody's a cool name. Shadow Melody is a cool yeah. name. Where are you the, dancing the, at,
2: Shadow Melody? First.
0: Okay. All right. <laughs> Todd, stop flirting with our you guys, sorry
2: Disgusting. <laughs> uh all right. So she gave us the number three, so you're gonna count down three shelves from the top right hand corner, and then also from her, you're gonna count twenty-seven books over. Ready, guys?
0: Alright, I'll be back.
2: Sorry I was slow. I did a refrigerator revisit and got a seltzer.
1: That should, that should go in the show. We should also do a refrigerator revisit.
0: You have to eat
1: the third object over. Be a
0: lot of herring. Eat or drink. Oh, God. That could go
2: really badly for me. There's a lot of pickles and old things
0: in there. All right. Who wants to go first?
2: Uh, I found a book that I love. I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. H- have you guys read this?
0: No. No, I have heard about this book.
2: Um, possibly. I think it's kind of a cult favorite right now. Um, so Dodie Smith is actually most uh, popular for writing uh, the classic novel, 101 Dalmatians. Did you guys know that oh. was a book? That's a book. Yeah. I didn't know that was a book. I have not read it, um, but this was given to me in the way that most of my favorite books were given to me. Um, a hobo before...
1: showed up in a water <laughs> tower. A hobo named Johnny. <laughs> he handed it to me with a pledge that I
0: keep his secrets secret. Read this book then, <laughs> Julia. I don't know if that was the right hobo Johnny voice. Uh, it sounded like hobo Johnny to me. Okay,
2: well, wait a minute. Um, my hobo Johnny is um, by the name of a bookseller named Mora. Uh, oh, so hmm. she re- There was a period of time where I was living in New York And um, there was this amazing bookstore Called Three Lives and Company Bookstore um, Writer Have you been there? I feel like we've talked about it
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
2: So it's a very small bookstore and um, I used to work Right near it and I would go there on my lunch break Pretty much every day And there was a point at which um, I would just go in and ask her To tell me what to read And it resulted in probably the best year Of reading of my life um, oh,
0: what a great argument for bookstores, yeah. right? Oh, like, my God. That is yeah. exactly why you need bookstores. So you have a human contact. Like, when I walked into Powell's, I was in Portland uh, like a month ago, and I walked into Powell's, and this is exactly what happened. Yep. I had, like, a 10-minute conversation with the woman while I was checking out we're talking books, we're getting suggestions, we're, you know, just trading ideas. I walked out, I never made it past the first room in Pals. I walked out with five books. Wow. Yeah. It's like, insane.
2: Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Side note, I mean, I hope Mora comes across this, but we're still friends. We email, and sometimes I see her when I go to New York. She doesn't work there anymore, but um, so she recommended this book to me, um, I Capture the Castle by Jody Smith, and um, actually it's weird to talk about it because the plot itself, I don't remember extremely well, but I remember loving it because of the voice of the character. And I know a lot of people have read this book and they all feel the same way. Um, they actually also talked about it on the slate culture gab fest, uh, for the same reason. So like, here's the, um, here's the first paragraph. I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. That is, my feet are in it. The rest of me is on the draining board, which I have padded with our dog's blanket and the tea cozy. I can't say that I'm really comfortable, and there's a depressing smell of carbolic soap, but this is the only part of the kitchen where there's any daylight left, and I've found that sitting in a place where you have never sat before can be inspiring. I wrote my very best poem while sitting in the hen house, though even that isn't a very good poem. I have decided my poetry is so bad that I mustn't write any more of it. So it's just this, like, it's this this teenage girl's voice that moves along at a clip, and it's just, um, it's almost a Grey Gardens-type situation of this old, you know, English manor house and uh, this young girl finding love. And it's, it's a really classic little novel, but um, the character is so charming, and the book is so good, and I've never met anyone who has read it who does not love this book. So read it. I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith.
1: Wow, that's that's a ringing endorsement, and and let's uh, a quick shout out to Moira again. Where does she work now, so people can go and bother her?
2: She's in architecture school.
1: Oh, so people could go up to her and ask to have a building recommended to them now.
2: Their demands can become much larger. Yes, <laughs> oh. Moira is the one who recommended to me Stoner wow. by John Williams, and oh, um,
1: life changing.
2: Yeah. Why is not Moira of-
1: on this show with us? She sounds like the, she should be the fourth disco dancer.
2: She totally should. We should have her as a guest sometime. Let's do it.
1: All right. It's a deal.
2: Okay, who's next? I'll go. Uh,
0: I ended up landing on one of the greatest books ever written, The Sound and the Fury oh, by William yay! Faulkner.
1: That is a great book. Yeah. Yes.
0: I remember it was my first year in college, and I had heard Faulkner's name, but I had never read, read him at all. And um, it was actually... A really great gift that somebody gave me. And I, I can't remember this person's name, but it was somebody I had worked with. I had worked, um, I had been working for Disney and she was a, a, in the publicity department at Disney. And I had done like a tour. I forget what it was, but you know, I'd done a bunch of publicity work with her and um, you know, that you don't get really paid for anything like that. But as a thank you gift, she decided to give me a series, like, like 10 books. And each one was um, the book that had won, I think the Pulitzer in different years. It was like uh-huh, a great cool. gift. That's it was a, a collection gift. of books basically and they were all books I hadn't read and The Sound of the Fury was one of them. I remember sitting down to read this and I was in English classes in college uh and I thought I was like a really savvy reader and this is one of those books that you open up and you go I have no idea how to read this <laughs> and like am I the dumbest person in the world but I couldn't stop. I was so in love with it and obsessed with it immediately um so if anybody hasn't read this this book or know what it's about it's it's about a family in the south in uh the 1920s well it kind of jumps around in time which is one of the reasons why it's really confusing but it opens up being told by a uh, mentally disabled character this guy named um benji and he's our narrator in the whole first like hundred pages yeah. or so and, and Falkner, he has
2: no sense of past or present right no sense of time
0: so, the Benji section, there's there's four sections to the book. The first is narrated by Benji. The second section is Quentin. Anybody? Quentin. Quentin. Yeah. Third section is Jason. Fourth section, no, is it Jason? Fourth yes. section? No, it's yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger narrates third... the third section. <laughs> third se- fourth section is in third person, but it's following um the uh Dilsey,
2: the, right? Uh, oh, right, the, the girl, who,
0: the maid. Right. So, it's a it's a very it's complicated book. It's you know, considered one of the breakthrough modern books. Um, And it's really good. It's really emotional. Um, And if you can get through the first 100 pages without, like, you know, burning the book because you're so frustrated, uh, it all kind of comes together in a beautiful way. Um, Yeah, so Benji is narrating, like, I think there's eight different timelines in the opening section, and it jumps in between them. And the only way you know that you've shifted timelines is that it moves from italics to non-italics so you know that it's shifted in time but it's yeah so he has like eight six or eight distinct uh days that he's talking about and covering and you start gathering what has happened in this family it's falling apart they had this like really crazy overbearing father and and then eventually um There was a a young woman uh, who's Benji's sister who got pregnant, ran away. There's probably incest involved or the insinuation of incest to cover up a out-of-wedlock pregnancy... There are characters who are named the same name yeah. that they don't explain. <laughs> so you have to like sit there and yep. you know slamming your head against the wall before you realize that there's two caddies and that they're two different people. No, and there's one of them's two, male
2: and one of them's female. There's two Quentins. Uh, yeah. But Quintins the caddy the caddy thing, um, this is also all within the first section. Um, this is what made me wanna kill myself. Is that the idea of the first section is that Benji is at a golf game and people keep saying the word caddy so that triggers right. memories of his sister caddy. Um, but it's very unclear that that's what's happening. Well,
1: you know what? There, there's a really helpful way yeah. to read The Sound in the Fury. Um, and I, as Ryder was talking, I, I thought that I had talked about this somewhere and I had eight years ago on my blog, uh, which I haven't updated in about three years. Um, Oprah had selected Sound in the Fury and she put out... A very helpful guide on how to read it. And I'd like to share with you guys a couple of her suggestions. Do you mind, Ryder, if I, if I horn in for a moment? <laughs> no. <good. clears throat> so, here's uh, the first idea that Oprah has. Like the Quentin Tarantino movie Pulp Fiction, the sections in The Sound and the Fury, told from different perspectives and at different points in time, build on each other like scenes from the movie. So if you're wrestling with one section, fast forward to another. Just make sure you no. make it all the way through the novel at least once. So that's number 1. Her next idea. No. <laughs> this is it, it only gets better. Her next idea, like TV shows and movies, Faulkner's were to god. Oh my god, I'm
0: going to scream! <laughs> like,
1: like TV shows that's and movies. Book. Faulkner's characters have flashbacks and speak in quote voiceovers as they share their inner thoughts as things happen around them. Oh, my hold on, god. there's more. <clears throat> Faulkner's punctuation and stream of consciousness style can be confusing, but remember, at heart, Faulkner thought of himself as a failed poet. Instead of focusing on how the words are written on the page, focus on how they make you feel. Read a passage out loud. Check to see what date it is at the beginning of the section you're reading. The novel spans two decades, and multiple characters share the same names. That's, uh, that's how Oprah got wow. her readers uh, through The Sound and the Fury. Wow.
0: I mean, I can't imagine, because I can't imagine worse advice because... Well, that last point wasn't horrible, but the first two are so awful because what is so great about this book is that it does things that only books can do. Right.
2: Yes. It changed the yeah. way we
0: think of novels. Right. It changed the it, it like stretches the form so far and shows you how the power of words and narrative and how you can approach a story from inside characters' heads and but you, you can know, just fast types of that writer. You can just skip so. a chapter and then oh. come back
1: to it after the commercial break.
0: But like, I mean, I love I love movies and you know television too. But it's a completely different type of mindset to approach it and like. That is so offensive to me because this, yeah. book, this book for me at, you know, the age of 17 or whatever when I was reading it, that's what blew my mind is that it, it expanded my conception of what literature was capable of and, and also specifically what literature is capable of that movies can't do. You know, you can't be inside a mentally disabled person's head in a film. And if you tried to do that, it would be horrible. But, you know, there's mm-hmm. things that movies... Do that books can't do as well. You know, you look at a Terrence Malick film, and it's like, there's that would be really hard to express in a novel. But you know, whatever. She the might as well have is, just said, so different. "You
1: know, The Sound of the Fury, like a banana split, has several different <laughs> toppings that you can experience <laughs> at your leisure." You know, for fuck's sake. It's woman. sad
2: because I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for making books, you know, accessible and all that stuff. But the book is so much about the how we think about time and how. Yeah. Every person. This is what Faulkner excels at, and Virginia Woolf too. Uh, you know how people in a single moment are thinking about their past and mm-hmm. their future and their present, and that is inexpressible in any other way. And it's not like Pulp Fiction. No, you
1: know? it is not categorically <laughs> That's like Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Fiction is about. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I, and yeah. so listeners, I'll, I will post a link up to this on our Facebook, so you can see for yourself Oprah's great advice if you choose to read. The Sound and the Fury upon Ryder's suggestion, this will be very helpful to you. Think of it like a like a commercial, you know? At the end of it, you're going to want to buy something, and it's going to be The Sound and the Fury.
2: And it's incest.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you get yourself some, some lovely incest for, for the holidays.
0: If anybody wants to read a... I mean, like I, Faulkner is one of those people, like Shakespeare, that I've, I've actually made it my mission to read everything they've ever written. And so I've, I'm pretty close. I think there's only a couple Faulkner books I haven't read some of his less popular ones, but is um, Twilight fan fiction. Tw- <laughs> One of the greatest books he wrote is Absalom, Absalom. And that's arguably better than sound of the fury. And, and what's so cool about Faulkner's books is that he created a fictional County and all of his books take place in this County and make references to each other. And so Quentin, who is the narrator of the second section of the sound of the fury is the narrator of Absalom, Absalom. And, it's just so cool the way reading his entire canon, it all fits together. It's like such a great geeky thing. And it was like way ahead of its time in so many ways. Um, did you guys know? Here's a cool fact that he originally wanted to print all the different time frames of Benji's section in a different color. No. So that Ooh. the reader could understand which time we were talking about, that would have been by whether it was yeah. red or. Yeah, it would have been really. <laughs> helpful. Oh, I love him. So if you haven't read uh, any Faulkner, I would suggest starting with maybe "As I Lay Dying." That's the yes. most accessible or, um, one.
1: Eas- yeah, easily. I think that's
0: the and it's yeah, it's kind of quick and it still jumps around from character to character, but you kind of can get what's happening a lot easier.
2: Um, and those great. characters are always labeled. That one is about a uh, family taking the corpse of their mother on a journey to bury her where she wants to be buried. Right. So it's a very clear narrative. Mm. And at one point, the corpse itself has a narrative passage
1: it, it's really similar i think for readers to uh season four of six feet under if you need something to really help you <laughs> understand as i lay dying i think six feet under would help um
2: if i if i like the wire what uh modernist novel should i
1: read? Uh, the, the wire <laughs> is the greatest modernist novel ever written actually <laughs> <laughs> that i will that i say with no irony or sarcasm at all I love the wire. Oh,
2: That's why I'm laughing.
1: Damn you! All right, Todd. What did you What did you end up on? Well, I ended up on a book called, um, and now this is part of the problem with this book. I ended up on a book called Tetractus by Ari Jewell. Um, uh, what? And it's a book that um, my friend Stacy Beerline, who was my editor at, at Other Voices, who's published two of my short story collections, she took on um, an editorial role with a. Uh, a press called Emerald Bay Books, which has published exactly one book, Tetractis. And uh, so she edited this book, and so I, I have a copy of it. Um, and uh, it's about, I, I, um, I got all the way through it, but I don't remember um, a lot about it uh, <laughs> in the sense that I didn't read it, it. Is, a cons- is it a sci-fi book? Oh, yeah. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's a conspiracy Older than the Da Vinci Code. A secret cult more dangerous than the Templar Knights. A prize more valuable than any previously imagined. International computer security expert Ari Jules, that's the author, brings his extraordinary talents to a heart-racing thriller that spans the centuries from ancient Greece to today and a masterful debut and the must-read of the year. Um, So I didn't actually read it. um, (laughs) Because I, I didn't find it interesting. But also because... You can't pronounce the fucking title. It is yeah. T-E-T-R-A-K-T-Y-S. It's an impossible, it's Tetractus. And it's...
2: Uh, tet.
1: Uh, I don't know. Tractis. I don't know what it's, I, I can't tetractis. pronounce it. Tetractus. That sounds
2: right.
0: Tetractus.
1: You don't want, this is a lesson to the aspiring writers in the audience, you don't want to write a book that no one can pronounce the title of. That's a mistake because you can't say, Oh my God, I want to recommend a great book to you. It's called Ted T- track. I don't know. It's by a guy named Ari. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do that. This is the book. I've not read it. My friend Stacy edited it. I'm sure it's wonderful. Ari, the author um, is a code breaker. That's his actual job. He is chief scientist at RSA laboratories. And I had dinner with him one night um, and he was telling me all this fascinating stuff about breaking codes um, which so is, how
0: did this come about? Did he? Did somebody say like, "Oh, you should write a Da Vinci Code style book because you know codes really well"? I. Or I
1: don't remember how it came about. I have I have no memory of how it came about. He was very pleasant, very nice guy, and I didn't have the heart. So instead, I'm just going to say it now to the world that he really picked a terrible title for his book.
2: <laughs> well, it, it made it makes me think of Tesseract, which makes me think of A Wrinkle in Time.
1: Makes me think of testicles, which makes me think of think of my balls.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) All right, all right. Please, despite Todd's balls, stick around, and we will talk about Sherlock Holmes. And I promise we will never mention his sack again. Never again.
2: (laughs) Oh, you—you're the one who said sack. (laughs)
0: Guys, we've gotten dirty, this is bad.
2: That—that was bad. Everybody, welcome back to Literary Disco. Julia here. I'm here with Todd and Ryder. Hi, guys.
1: Hi, Julia. Julia and I just spent the week together in Boston. It was not sorted. We were there for business reasons only.
2: Yeah, we were at AWP. Uh, Yeah. Well, let's take a second. Um, Todd, how would you characterize AWP, which is, if you don't know, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference? Um,
1: a lot of poets. A lot of poets. Actually, Julia and I, um, this is sort of a Sherlockian thing. We're about to talk about the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, so this relates. Julia and I were walking through the um, book fair, which is a giant, several giant halls filled with literary magazines and progr- college writing programs and much bunch of other stuff. And we ran across... A very strange Bedouin-style tent that was filled oh my God. with poets. We went into the tent, and there was no one there. So we did what any
2: wise awesome. people
1: would do. Is we went in and we investigated what was inside the very strange Bedouin poetry tent. And inside, it smelled of patchouli and uh, a musk-like scent emitted mostly by male poets. Um, there was a strange little doll that julia um handled well we'll put a photo of it i have a photo of it yeah there was a lot of pillows that seemed to have been stolen from a sheraton nearby
2: there was a suitcase with nothing in it think about that everyone
1: <laughs> the this, the suitcase was empty the case of the empty suitcase would be a sherlock holmes story there was a lot of strange things but mostly what was great about being there was that uh, we got to meet a lot of you fans that was the best part wasn't it julia
2: Yes, I loved you guys.
1: Julia's got a big fan base of people that just want to hear her laugh, which is strange because a lot of them wanted to hear her laugh, and then they started unbuttoning their clothes. So that was a twist I wasn't expecting.
2: That didn't happen even one time. Wow. And we met a lot of writers who we featured on the show. We met Camille Dungy, Justin Torres, and Cheryl Strayed. Did we meet anyone else? Oh, Stephen Dow.
1: Oh, of course. Stephen Dow, who's been on the show. Yeah, he was there too. Um, It was a good time. It was a good time. But not as much fun... I think, as solving crimes in the 1800s while strung out on cocaine, which is what...
2: Great transition, yes. perfect.
1: Which is what Sherlock Holmes does throughout the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Now, why are we reading this? How, how did this come about?
0: Oh, no, it was during a discussion of one of our books. I said I had never read any Sherlock Holmes, and somebody went, Episode!
1: <laughs> that, that sounds like me, <laughs> that that weird little voice you just did.
0: <laughs> yeah. Episode! Um, Episode!
2: <laughs>
1: Franks and Beans! So- <laughs>
2: We wanted to read, we've, we've read a bunch of things that you all have read as children or as teenagers, um, but we wanted to take on a classic of some kind that a lot of you either had read or had an idea of what it was um, as adult literature. So, um, dear listeners, we don't know if you guys have read Sherlock Holmes, but you certainly must know of Sherlock Holmes, the character, the figure um, who has endured to this day as a... An information hero, um, which is an idea that we'll get back to. Um, so, Todd, you hadn't read any Sherlock Holmes before either, had you?
1: Um, I I don't think so. Um, because reading these um, short stories of his that are in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, I can't see how, having read them, I would have sought out more.
0: <laughs> oh! Not a fan. Wow. <laughs> well,
1: Burn. no, that's okay. not entirely true. I mean, I, I think they're, they're so formulaic. Each and every story that he tells is the same formula, which yeah. is annoying. It's really annoying. Um, but there's actually some really excellent writing in it. But there's there's so many great, strange things in these stories. Um, we mentioned the the cocaine bit um, a moment ago. I'd like and to read reason, to you. for some
0: reason, cocaine makes him drowsy. Yeah, so... It's like constantly <laughs> referring to his cocaine naps.
1: At the beginning of the book, there's a, um, a story called A Scandal in Bohemia, and uh, all of the stories are narrated, for those of you who have not read it, um, by Watson, not Sherlock Holmes. So Watson is the, is the narrator of all the stories. And Watson says, My own complete happiness and the home centered interests which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were sufficient to absorb all of my attention. While Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition, the drowsiness of the drug, and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. As Ryder and I discussed recently, we I've never done cocaine, and neither has Ryder. Um, but when we've been around people who have done cocaine, they didn't seem all that drowsy.
0: No. No. They're not, they're not taking many naps.
2: <laughs> well, no. I mean, there's structurally something kind of incredible in there, which is that... Uh, his ambition is so much more hyper and overpowering than whatever drug he does is. So,
1: well, he has sort of a—he does seem like someone who's on cocaine, though. Because- I was gonna
2: say, because yeah, people that are coked out, they have like huge egos,
0: right? And they're they taking shit it apart, apart all the time. But what I couldn't... You know what I got really sick of? And maybe this is a result of the cocaine that Sherlock Holmes threw. Why is he always talking about people's clothing? Like, every time somebody walks in, he's like, let me show you how smart I am. And then the first thing he does is, you have a tear on your left knee. That means you've been sucking dick in the alley. And they're like, how did you know? It's like comes down to clothing. It's like, oh, your sleeve is frayed on the right side. You must have been typing. Yeah. And I just don't understand. I figured that out after the second story. Yeah. It's like, well, check out their clothing, Watson. And Watson still couldn't do it. It was like, every time somebody walked in and they'd be like, Sherlock Holmes, can you help me? And he'd be like, I could help you, but... You know, you've obviously just helped yourself to some porridge. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> How did he know? He's like, did you not see the stain on it? It's like, shut up. You've recently boring. returned
1: from the Orient. Well, wait
2: a minute, wait. <laughs> I think that, well, to show my hand here, I love Sherlock Holmes. I love this period of literature. I took a class in it in college that was my favorite class that I took of oh, everything ever. It was a class um, so
0: just on this period or on Sherlock Holmes? The or?
2: class was uh, called the Wild 90s but it was Oscar Wilde in the 1890s. Oh, uh, that's, awesome. and that's a it pun. Was about um, <laughs> It was about um, what is called fantasy éclat, so in French, end of the century European literature, and there's a lot of themes and ideas that really came about at this time that were they really lead to a lot of things that we are still into today, which is part of the reason that you know. Oscar Wilde is still so popular as an idea. Sherlock Holmes is still so popular as an idea. Um, Jekyll and Hyde is of the exact same time period of this. So all of these books have like a certain sense of how they're written and how their yeah. characters like move through the world. So for example, um, one thing well, oh gosh, I have so much to say. so read, reading these as short stories, I feel like is um, I've, I've never read them back to back like this before. I've read the novels one at a time. And I've read a story here and there, but yeah, you really get a sense of the repetition, but that's not how people were reading them when they came out. You know, they were reading them one at a time and then waiting a while and reading another one. so there was like a deliciousness to seeing that person, you know, that case walk through the door and then having Sherlock decode everything about them. But what was, what's so wonderful about that moment, even though, you know, even though, you know, like, all right, this person's going to walk through and their coat's going to be tattered and that shows that they you know work in manual labor but they their brother recently died or whatever. Mm. You it's still surprising what he is discovering. The all of the action takes place in Sherlock's own head. You know what I mean? He's an information hero. Yeah, so. well, that's
0: what I kept being weirded out by. Yeah. It's like I thought they would go on like right. adventures. I thought it was no. going to be more like the Hardy Boys in the sense no. that they'd like investigate something and then you know search around with this magnifying glass and find clues. But they like. It's more about the power of the mind mm-hmm. and about exactly. the power of repose in a way. Like this idea that like if I just sit back and do enough cocaine and smoke my <laughs> pipe, I'll figure out this whole thing <laughs> and I never have to leave this chair, which is such a. Exactly. It must have been such an, a revolutionary idea. And I, I, I see what you're saying and why it goes along with the time period, because it's like you're talking about trains and the development of, you know, the idea that you could move to another continent. You know, on a boat so quickly, and
1: but but here here's my thing though is that I feel like it's an inert form of storytelling because everything that happens is exposition. So all the the, the dialogue that of, of whoever comes in with a problem, you know, tells their entire life story to Sherlock Holmes and including quotes from other people um, in their life story, and it's just I mean it's it's a really passive. Form of storytelling, oh, and, which, totally, which I found, you know, that is what great on me. The first story, okay, I liked it. Second story, oh, that's not bad. The third story is like, would you just go leave this apartment and find this information out on on your own? But the way Arthur Conan Doyle writes, it also, it's it's sort of a passive way of of narrating anyway, because he has a third person narrating the story of someone else's life, which is Watson narrating Holmes's life, which is in and of itself distancing from the action. So I, I kept wondering God you know what a weird choice to make you know why not put it in Holmes perspective but of course you don't want to be in Holmes's head once you're in Holmes's head the mystery is gone you know you, you, right. you don't want to know that guy you just want to see him do stuff but...
2: Right, because, yeah, so, well, there's so many things I like about Watson, too, and this is actually something that the BBC show depicts really well that I described in another episode. So, Watson is a doctor, and he's been to war, mm-hmm. so he's an yeah, e- extremely... Yeah, they got those
0: references to that in this yeah. stories, mm-hmm. and I was like, what? He talks about Afghanistan yeah. at one point, and then he's yes. also, he has this one section where, like, a paragraph where he goes, and he's like, I had to spend all day with one of my patients, you know, by his side as he was suffering in bed. I was like, oh, God, like Watson <laughs> has a whole life that we know nothing about. Exactly. But
2: but the idea is that like Watson as as smart and capable as he clearly is, like he's still bored in his own life and he goes to his crazy Cokehead friend. I mean one of my favorite openings to the stories is um he goes he's asked to go like grab somebody out of an opium den. And he, uh, so he's like his one of his patients asks him to go find her husband who's an opium addict, and he goes into this opium den, and in the opium den is Sherlock Holmes hanging out, (laughs)
1: just (laughs) chilling, so great.
2: And then that really it takes a very indirect move into Sherlock Holmes being like, oh yeah, I'm here uh, in this opium den, um, oh investigating a crime. (laughs)
1: you know what though uh, you know what's funny is and Ryder mentioned this a second ago about the hardy boys did either of you think of the hardy boys when you got to the redheaded league yes of course
0: (laughs) evil redheads evil redheads i yeah that story is so weird like it's it's the the story redheaded league is about a guy who is convinced that he can help run a redheaded league of people that are redheaded and that that He's going to, to copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica four hours a day. And of course... He's
2: an idiot. Yeah. He's not a wrong. fast
0: learner. Big surprise... It's a con, and they're just trying to get him out of his house so they can dig a tunnel to the bank under his house or whatever. And
1: there's a scene where there are, where every redhead in all of Europe, apparently, has gathered outside of this office building because uh, there's been an ad placed saying... That you would know, have
0: been a nightmare for the Hardy Boys. <laughs> the just
1: Hardy saying, Boys nightmare. would have not known what to do.
0: They, they would have solved all of their crimes in one fell swoop. Yeah. Well, so going back to, um, to, to Julia's point, I, 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 there was this really interesting passage that ended... Uh, one of the stories, the oh, it was the Red-Headed League, where they, they solve the crime, and, you know, Watson says, you reasoned it out beautifully, and Sherlock Holmes' response is, it saved me from ennui, he answered, yawning, <laughs> alas, I already feel it closing in upon me, my life is spent in one long effort to escape from the commonplace of existence, these little problems ah. help me to do so.
2: I was Isn't like that, that is
0: incredible yes. like that is the whole point of these stories and that is such a weird point I mean I it, it's I I don't know like I, I I get what you're saying Todd you know we can criticize it as a um you know as stories and as storytelling but when I think about him as cultural documents mm-hmm. at the time and the energy of that time, it is so weird that he was a hero and that we're holding him up on a pedestal like this is what people wanted to read about. They wanted to read about somebody whose brain was just going crazy and they couldn't contain it and they needed to just fight boredom because otherwise they would just be sitting around in salons sipping tea and, you know, have nothing to do. So he's like willing to solve crimes and do all this stuff. He's not a police officer no. he's no. just doing it out of boredom right like he's just doing yeah. it because he's passionate about i don't know it's but it's also kind of negative like you feel sorry for Sherlock Holmes when you read something like that you're like oh dude you must live a pretty sad he life. ends
1: that story yes. by quoting a letter Flaubert wrote to George Sand for god's sake i mean right. it's not like he's dealing from a, a <laughs> hand of happiness here um, no
2: he's a really
0: depressed
1: he's a guy. really depressed guy of profoundly depressed. Yeah, guy.
2: there's so many. Uh, oh god, there's so many interesting things about this. Like, so another characteristic of this time is that. Um so many of these novels and stories are, um, they have, I mean, these stories have women mm-hmm. in them, but it's really about, it's a completely homosocial world. Yeah, so, they're so dishonest. Not homosexual. That.
0: No, homosocial. It's not sexual at all. No. no. So,
2: but it's just Watson and Sherlock saying, like, okay, there's these women in our lives, but, like, this is our, like, bro bonding is hanging out, figuring out, you know, what ships come into what ports. It is Hardy Boys esque, actually, mm-hmm. now that uh, we've, but you we've brought that Action.
0: You right. You the, it's you remove yeah. the the flights of you know climbing this ladder and jumping into this hole it is, or whatever. It it's is very... mostly action
1: free. I mean, there's there's one story. Yeah. In fact, the adventure of the Speckled Band, which is actually an, a fairly interesting story, uh, because it involves a snake. Um, but <laughs> there's Holmes and Watson are walking through a property that um, where uh, the man who owns the property keeps a, a pet cheetah and a pet. Uh, orangutan or chimp and they they encounter them on the grounds but they just sort of yeah sidestep side the, the danger of that it's very strange and they, they're they're yeah. jumping into windows and stuff but it's all handled in always the same tone
0: but it's like the, it's like they're a leisure class yes you know like the idea mm-hmm. is and i think there is a lot of classism and sexism in these books i mean obviously oh just yeah a product of the time but especially like the red-headed league you're kind of supposed to laugh at the guy who's comes to them and there's this insinuation that he's like lower class working class guy who's just got duped over by a smarter con man and then in like another story there's a woman who essentially married her stepfather because he was impersonating a different guy oh, she was right. behind like she her eyes it really is such weird. a bizarre yeah. story and the weirdest <laughs> part about it is that Sherlock Holmes and Watson the woman comes to them and says my husband disappeared and she tells this whole story and Holmes very quickly figures out that well she, she was duped by her stepfather who just wanted her inheritance but uh, he doesn't deal with her he just dismisses her and says get out of here And and it's like she's she's not worth solving the crime for. And so instead he gets the stepfather to the house and traps him and tells him I solved the whole thing, I figured it all out. And then the end of the story, the guy's like, Are you gonna tell her? And they all just dismiss her. It's like, well she doesn't really matter. It's like let her think that her husband disappeared.
2: Yeah, they don't want to. I mean, her. it's sexist in a different yeah. way. Yeah, if they don't want to break her heart. They don't want her to realize she married her stepfather. with her
0: right. dad. Okay, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but treating but treating women as a special, <laughs> fragile sex is also a form of sexism, right? So
2: uh, I, no, I agree. I, I agree. mean, it, it, but it's Clearly. also just
0: the the, the the concept of in both of those stories, it's a you know, in the redheaded thing, it's a class thing, and I feel like in the um, I'm blanking on the name of that a case of identity, it's. It's about, you know, her identity as a woman that it's like, oh, well, these people who come to us with these crimes, they don't even matter after the crime has started. You know, it's like, well, now let's take it into the leisure class where we will sit around you, Dr. Watson and me, Holmes, and maybe a police chief if we get him involved. And we'll just sit around and banter and talk of this out. It's like, I don't know. It's just a bizarre approach, you know, as opposed to the Hardy Boys, which really did have this element of like, we're going to solve this crime for justice. Justice is its own good. We're going to solve a crime to for the better good of people, and like rich people in, in the Hardy Boys were were considered maybe villains, if anything, whereas in this book, there's more this sense of like, this is a puzzle, this is a logic problem, it's fun to figure out, it's not in the name of justice or right and wrong, necessarily. Yeah, but this, I mean, really you, you can't,
1: I don't think you can, you can look at Sherlock Holmes as, well, I mean, you can look at Sherlock Holmes as a precursor to the Hardy Boys, but I mean, Sherlock Holmes truly set the stage for what would become noir fiction in right. the early yeah. 20th century where this sort of um, just doing it to do it and there's no greater good is, you know, it, that that's what these dark-hearted noir stories really became in the golden age of the pulps um, right. which i really i love those stories but you can sort of see also the the movement from like being a coke addict to being a drunk you know in from sherlock holmes to the noir sure. stories in in the 20s and 30s and the early 40s
0: why do we do that why do we love fragile ruined detectives
1: typically um you know these sort of uh these, these sort of Ruined characters come about at a ruined time. So, in the 20s, the these sort of hard-boiled um, characters start coming out after World War One. So you saw that these people trying to make sense of the world and putting things back together came about then. And then during the Depression, there were these guys like, you know, when Raymond Chandler was writing his stuff, you know, you or not Raymond Chandler, um, Dashiell Hammett was writing his stuff, where there's both the side of Dashiell Hammett where it's the glamour and that people couldn't have, and he still put stuff together. So I'm thinking about, like, The Thin Man. Or there was, you know, the, the characters that were just ultra-violent and took out evil corporations that were ruining towns and things like that. Uh, really yeah i mean and this is so you see you see these things happening um as a reflection of the time so even if you look at say like the Dirty Harry movies, where right. um, Harry Callahan comes along after or during Vietnam, basically 1972, and He's gonna he, clean
0: up the mess. cleans
1: up the mess. Or right. Die Hard, With you know, you see so the Die Hard like, movies yeah. in the at the at the end of the 80s. Die Hard came out in like 89 or something, and he cleans up the mess. You know, these Eastern Europeans are here to blow shit up. So you see these <laughs> sort of archetypal uh, noir heroes coming during the time of calamity and then you see people like superman coming when we really need a a hero so world war ii is going on superman shows up you know you don't want someone who is dark inside you want someone who's going to save us all you know all that stuff so you see these sort of patterns in history uh in crime fiction so i'm i'm as you might have gleaned i'm I'm sort of a geek on this stuff <laughs> so
2: now to now to bring you to my geek level okay so yes. you're an incredible 20th century geek on this so okay pop quiz guys this these stories were written contemporaneously to what world-changing crime any guesses
1: 9-11 <laughs> um
2: no this is this is it this is going to crack open this entire period of literature for okay. you okay Jack the Ripper. Right. So, yes.
0: So yes. what
2: what Jack the Ripper changed about the idea of crime is that, and this completely relates to both Sherlock Holmes and Jekyll and Hyde, is that there is a killer on the streets among us at every moment, and we are not seeing him. He right. is mm-hmm. outdoors in our society, and if only we could see if only we could put together these details, we would be able to find him. So, and it's
0: also the inscrutable nature of the crime itself, right? Like, this, right. Is a, this is a crime that is done for this person's pleasure. Right. It has, right. No, it, it has no financial right. gain. Mm-hmm. It has no necessarily logical end. It's just the idea of a criminal, like, the idea of a so- psychopath, right? That term didn't even pop up until the 1920s.
2: I used to read up a lot on Jack the Ripper. Um, I was into it briefly. But, um,
0: <laughs> you went through your serial killer phase. <laughs>
1: Sometimes I make Greg dress up like Jack the Ripper, but that's just—I mean—that's when we role play. It's
2: just a
0: thing. <laughs> just that's I like just our, it. I mean, just in the bedroom. Yeah, I mean.
1: <laughs> I mean oh, I'm always wearing. Uh, I always have a riding crop, so it's 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 cool. It's uh, not not violent, sexy. But
2: uh, you know, like uh, so Jack so the hot. Ripper. When you know so, he was, so it was never discovered who he was, but there were you know there was mail coming out, handwriting was analyzed, you know, so much of these, you know. Societies—it's—it's it's hard for us to imagine now, but so much of culture happened outdoors on the streets. And the idea of someone who walks around and take thing takes things in—I mean, it's interesting. You brought up the Flaubert quote, Todd, because he coined a phrase. Um, Uh, which is the flaneur, uh, which is also of this period. And Sherlock Holmes is a flaneur. I mean, we don't see him outside, but he's often talking about like, okay, well, I went on the street and I, you know, I saw someone get out of a cab and then I I went into an apartment and I cried fire and I saw where the people looked (laughs) and
0: whatever. It's urbanization, right? right. I mean, it's the idea that people were moving into cities and also the the connections. Like I, I found all the Eastern Europe, connections interesting mm-hmm. and like references to Asia and like there's definitely an excitement about the world getting smaller yeah. and communication getting you know mm-hmm. like people are traveling all over the place and communicating with distant lands and and like there's that one about the one story about the KKK mm-hmm. is like, all over there in America and there's boats and letters and murders across yes. the sea it's really interesting
2: yeah so so if you think of Sherlock Holmes as a direct response to Jack the Ripper exactly in the way that Todd's talking about it completely makes sense yeah say, it does if yeah. only there was a person who could just walk onto the street and put everything together at once, Mm -hmm. you know, it is such a relief, but I mean, and you also mentioned the police before. And I mean, this is also in a grand tradition of the police are like complete idiots in (laughs) Sherlock Holmes. And they they keep saying like, Oh, well your theories and what are what and whatever. Fine. And Sherlock Holmes is this rogue operator, which, you know, I feel like, most of the noir that I've seen or read is also in that mode of, you know, the actual authorities don't know anything. We need a hero, an individual, as distasteful as they might be, they might know, you know, something that the common man cop or not cannot see or conceive of. I
1: think also the thing that, well, so... As I know I said earlier that I liked each story less and less as I read, and that's because I read them all in a row. I think I think if I read them just on a train somewhere, I'd probably, you know, or in the bathroom or something, one at a time. It'd have to be a very long bathroom trip. The stories are very complex that um, I might like them better. But the interesting thing that I found is actually what an unusual thing also sort of in crime fiction um is that developing relationship between Holmes and Watson? So mm-hmm. this book actually starts out with um Watson already being married, and then it sort of catches up to him in his single life, too. And so you see the evolution of what their relationship was like and then what led to um to Watson eventually finding um, companionship that wasn't strung out on coke and and smoking opium. But that idea of the 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 great mind with his partner, I mean, that is, Everything that has become of crime fiction and also uh, TV cop shows and movies yeah. for the last, you know, 125 years now is a direct re- take from this. It's a buddy, you know, it's it's two buddies totally. solving crimes. I mean, that's the reason why there's a Sherlock Holmes on TV every season. And it doesn't matter if it's elementary or if it's Monk, um, it's still Sherlock Holmes, uh, is because... W- we're fascinated by that relationship, by the super mind and the smart person who's not even as sharp as that person. I think that's that was an interesting thing for me to see, that, that evolution.
0: I do appreciate um, something that we haven't really talked about too much about is, is the nature. of I mean, he's brilliant, but it's also, it's very clearly, uh, the, these stories all celebrate scientific inquiry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of, of not that everything is deducible that you can just with the right tools and the right level of observation figure everything out that like the world is a logical system um, and I, I love that like I think that that's great to support you know like there's no magic if there's something magical happening or something impossible Sherlock Holmes is going to be able to figure it out and I could tell that that's as a lot I mean that led to a lot of sort of 20th century excitement about technology and science and I just think that's great you know I mean as far as I feel like a lot of kids books even kids books that we've liked and talked about usually involve magic mm-hmm. you know they usually involve it yeah and Sherlock Holmes which I kind of put in the same category I have to say which maybe isn't right because it's probably not kids books but I I guess maybe because they're short stories and they're sort of fun little mysteries I I associate them with being younger reading them but um I, I just I appreciate the fact that they they hold up the notion of, you know, reason and yes. science. I just think that that's so important. And unfortunately nowadays we don't really celebrate that. Like, no. you know, mm-hmm. at the end, of, by the end of the 20th century, it was in like, you know, let's debate climate change or whatever. It's like science is just out the door in mainstream conversation or mainstream stories. And mm-hmm. I really reading this, I was Oh, here was a time when the notion of science was exciting and it's something worth making a story about, and that's cool.
1: Well, he, at at the beginning of A Case of Identity, which is the story of the woman who accidentally marries her stepfather, um, which you'll see on Lifetime later this year, with Ashley Judd (laughs) in the main role, Um, it begins like this. Judith (laughs) Light. Lou Diamond
2: Phillips.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In his most challenging role yet. (laughs) Uh, It begins, My dear fellow, said Sherlock Holmes, as we sat on either side of the fire in his lodging at Baker Street, Life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out of that window hand in hand, hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs, and peep in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chains of events working through generation and leading to the most outre outre results... It would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusions most stale and unprofitable. I mean, Ah, that's awesome. That That is awesome. That's
2: incredible. So awesome. Uh, So here are some things that are not from the actual stories. Elementary My Dear Watson is never printed. He never wears a deerstalker cap. And he, I think, never uses a magnifying glass. That all came from when it began to be put on as a radio play. I... I really disagree with you, Todd, because I feel like those expositional passages are, to me, the whole thing. The beauty of the writing is without the style and structure and sophistication of this writing, these books would be the Hardy Boys. And the difference in quality is unbelievable. I mean, that passage you read earlier mm-hmm. about like flying out the window, that is so irrelevant to everything that is about to happen. Right. It's just them contemplating the nature of the world and the streets and their relationship in which they imaginarily hold hands and fly together.
1: <laughs> His knowledge of all things. <laughs> um, While well, I enjoyed that, it also began to grate on me too. I, I don't, maybe yeah. I'm just easily annoyed because I, I don't like to think that people solve crimes um, by their by the writer having the coincidence of someone knowing something before it happens. So that's a little bothersome to me, but I, I get that it's the conceit, and I, I get that's what makes him charming, is that he knows everything and knows of all the families and has files on everything.
0: This term that you were using, Julia, information hero, is that like a... what What is that? I've never heard that before. Is that a common thing? Um,
2: that is... I'm not sure. It's definitely something that I picked up from my class that I was talking about, so I don't want yeah. to speak out of turn as to where exactly it comes from or what its origin is but it is exactly what you're saying you know there's an encyclopedic knowledge and almost a photographic memory in a way or that his powers of observation are insane if you think about it we do have a sherlock holmes now and it is google you know what i mean we don't have a need for someone to to behave in this way because we have computers and we don't, we can search anything. We can research anything. We can find anything fast. And that's, you know, that's a completely new idea really. And Sherlock Holmes is essentially a search engine. You know, he has no feelings really (laughs) here. He doesn't care to. So he, he is a completely outdated kind of person because we don't, there's no, use for this person anymore like the observation absolutely but the scientific deduction and the categorizing of everything and the like taxonomic he kind of
0: has asperger's
2: yes exactly so in the bbc show like one thing that was controversial about when it first came out but made it very popular um amongst real sherlockians is that he does love technology he loves texting he's always looking things up because you know, that is exactly what Sherlock Holmes would do now. He is the equivalent of the person in the movie, you know, Googling off to the side, like, oh, my God, I found out this. You know what he, character he is closest to, actually, I would say, is um, the girl with the dragon tattoo, even though she's much more traumatized. Mm. Right. It's because she's... Right,
0: so she has, like, this cold, emotion emotionless front that she puts up. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can, oh, see, can that. see that.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I love this idea that he is a search engine. That is that is such a great thought on your part, Julia. That is a remarkable uh, insight. Thank you. You're welcome. You should, you should write a critical paper and, and deliver it somewhere. Well, let me just say, if I can, one other thing about the sort of mystery element of it, since that is something of my specialty, um, which is that he does the mysteries backwards from how contemporary mysteries are, which is that yeah. um, in contemporary mysteries... So if a story goes A to Z, a contemporary mystery starts at Z, and that Z is the dead body, or the missing girl, or the missing money, or whatever it is. And then A through Y is always trying to catch back up to that missing thing, and in that process, the detective grows, and his problems get more profuse, and all these different things happen, and everything is solved at the end. He has so much front-loading of information, there's no detection... Well, there's some detection involved, but a lot of the information that would normally happen in a detective novel is just delivered to him by the client themselves. All the evidence is contained by the client themselves, which takes a lot of the deduction out of it. And then there's no growth of the character, which is what we're so used to now, is that we see the salvation of the detective, or we see them become a worse person or whatever it is. And so that, I think, is the really interesting thing compared to modern day crime fiction, is that it's n- not at all about the character of Sherlock Holmes doing anything new for himself or changing in any way. And and we Watson changes incrementally, but not all that much. Um, and I found that sort of fascinating to see that this is where we came from Sherlock Holmes and Edgar Allan Poe to the modern day detective story which is, you know, all about solving the crime and also solving the character of the person who solves the crime, which I think is a, an interesting evolution. And I can't believe I hadn't registered that
2: um if if you guys or a listener would like to experience it in a somewhat more action, based way and also something i feel like everyone would just be slightly more comfortable with the hound of the baskervilles is the way to go oh my god creepy
1: wow
0: <laughs> <laughs> right as you said how um, uh
2: wow the hound of todd's baskervilles
1: <laughs> i have rabbit um, cocker spaniels that are taking over the countryside in england
2: <laughs> um that's a it's a novel length it takes place on the english moors la Weathering Heights, and, and a, it's the, the not best not episode strange. of
1: the Sherlock Holmes BBC series is Hound of Baskervilles too. Love that one.
2: Yes, really good one. Yes. All right,
1: okay, everybody, guys. thanks for listening. Come back yeah. next time. We're just gonna say words until Ryder cuts us off. Wow, Julia, yeah. you're pretty.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss Ron Curry Jr.'s novel, Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco. Thanks for listening.